Hi everyone. Uh, before we start the episode, we have a content warning. Uh, in this episode, as part of our discussion of the Susan Stryker piece, we briefly touch on the topic of suicide in the trans community. Um, Timestamps for these parts of our discussion will be in the description. To Starbird Vineyard Tours, a podcast about science fiction studies. I am Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, today we are talking about four different uh, essays or, or pieces. One of them is a book chapter on Frankenstein. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot that's been written about Frankenstein, and uh, it's, you know, obviously a major uh, science fiction novel, or at least I would call it such. It's also a gothic novel and a number of other things. It's it's a really interesting book, in my opinion. And I'm saying that in part because uh, every time one of these references, like, the traditional critical consensus from, like, the 1830s to the 1960s or so, I get mad on behalf of Mary Shelley. Yeah, there is a sort of um, idea, and I don't even think it's... uh, It's an idea that is to some extent present in some of these pieces, that Mary Shelley is like kind of a minor author. Um, Yeah. Frankenstein is like like an interesting but, uh, you know, an interesting but minor work overall yes um, and that is incorrect like i'm, I'm just going to stake <laughs> stake my position from the start so that nobody is in any ambiguity about my position which is that i think that frankenstein is a like an ethical work of uh, fiction not just as science fiction but in how it relates science fiction to a number of previous genres it is a uh it is a huge influence on science fiction albeit not immediately like you don't see frankenstein's influence in the like uh early gernsbachian science fiction era uh you see it i think referenced most often in asimov being angry at it because it makes people think that robots are evil uh, he, he talked a lot about the frankenstein complex and things like that but especially I mean, since the movie and since, and uh, even before that, there's the continuous availability of the metaphor of Frankenstein's monster in public discourse, and there's later been a real reconsideration of and re-engagement uh, with Shelley's novel itself, and I think that in retrospect, it more than stands up to the, you know, truly also great poets that uh, she was surrounded by. Yeah, yeah, I I agree generally. I think Frankenstein is like a a big deal as a novel. I mean, also, and you and I have talked about this before previously on the podcast, I think there's good reason to call Frankenstein the first real science fiction novel. Yes. Um, although, interestingly, we, um, only one of the pieces that we chose for today is like, really formally science fiction studies. Yeah, and I think there's a a very good reason for that, which is that while Frankenstein is, I think, again, very defensively the first science fiction novel, 
That's not primarily what it is, at least in, in form, in its time period. It's not as though it's part of a movement of science fiction novels at the time. Again, it takes a while for science fiction or its sort of, uh, you know, it's uh, the scientific romance of Wells and Verne's, or Roman Scientifique if you're Verne, uh, they don't really become uh, prominent or even really referential to Frankenstein for a while. So it's very much science fiction avant la lettre in a very literal sense. Before the term, before any of the similar terms, it is in its way unique, but it's also kind of the best gothic novel, so uh, you can really understand why they're... Okay, huge like yeah. gothic scholars don't yeah, at I don't... me... <laughs> I don't think I'm ready to, to support that claim just because I have not read that many gothic No, that, that's novels. very fair. Neither have I. I am just a science fiction partisan on this point. Uh, I don't actually mean disrespect to the gothic or the many good works that are in the gothic tradition. I just think that Frankenstein is... It's important in a number of different literatures. It's a major novel of the, like, literally of the Romantics, as in the little group of people who call themselves the, like, the, the later Romantics, the Young Romantics, the, the Byron Percy, etc. space. And it's this, like, uh, epical science fiction novel. It, and she's also the daughter of major social reformers and radicals, uh, Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, and, uh, that's cool. It's all really cool. There's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we've got four different pieces to talk about, so let's yeah. jump into it. What? Which one what do we start with? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh. I mean, my instinct is just to try to go chronologically because that strikes me as the easiest thing to do. Um, unfortunately, two of the two of the pieces were published in the same year. <laughs> Sorry, um, I just, that, that's very funny to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, you know what, why don't I at least list the pieces here? That's probably a good idea. Um, yeah. So, so we've got, uh, we've got a, an essay called Mary Shelley's Monster, Politics and Psyche in Frankenstein uh, by Lee Sterenberg, um, which is collected in a book called The Endurance of Frankenstein. Um, which came out in 1979. And I, I just want to point out how much that's a, um, like the idea of the endurance of Frankenstein as a title makes a lot of sense if you're sort of like, you know, I'm not sure this is truly one of the great romantic works, but it sure seems popular. Yeah, no, there's an interesting, the introduction to the this book uh, talks about like the origins of the book, and it mm -hmm. sort of seems like it was all these... A academics, presumably not every single one who contributed to the book, but a handful of them were at a dinner party and they were all talking to each other and they were all like, yeah, you know, I actually think Frankenstein is really interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not shocked. Anyway, um, then we also read uh, the, we read a chapter from the, uh, you know, speaking of epical books, The Mad Woman in the Attic. The Woman Writer and the 19th Century Literary Imagination uh, by Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar. Um, so we read Chapter 7, Horror's Twin, Mary Shelley's Monstrous Eve. Um, and that was also published in 79. Um, we read My Words to Victor Frankenstein Above the Village of Chamonix, Performing Transgender Rage uh, by Susan Stryker, um, mm -hmm. which is a... So it was originally uh, like a talk or even you could 
could call it a performance piece mm-hmm. uh, that was given in 1993. I'm not totally sure where the print version of it was first published. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow. Um, and then uh, we read the essay The Frankenstein Barrier by George Slusser, uh, which was published in Fiction 2000, Cyberpunk and the Future of Narrative, uh, in the year 2000. No, in the year 1992. Wait, really? Yeah. That's not what it says on the... Oh, no, you're totally right. Yeah, no, right. It just, it's just I called just... Fiction 2000, but it's before the millennium. Oh, my God. And it's No, you're right, in 1992. Yeah, and it's written just... Like, this is written at the height of the movement, a cyberpunk, uh, as a... Um, as like a, a recent thing, so it's responding to Neuromancer, it's responding to Burning Chrome, the Sterling and Gibson uh, body of work, which is why it discusses that so much. But no, it is it is called Fiction 2000, but it came out in 1992, and that if that isn't the most 90s thing you've ever heard... Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> so yeah, I hadn't realized that that means both of our... We have basically two like companion pieces in terms of uh, year. Yeah, um, not intentionally, but that is sort of how things happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are... To be clear, there's been plenty of interesting work published on Frankenstein in between the 70s and the 90s yeah, and yeah. also since. Um, you know, there's been interesting work on Frankenstein published in our lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, we, 1993 we is had to restrain times. Yes, we had to restrain ourselves um, <laughs> because four pieces is already a lot to talk yeah. about, I think. so. Yeah, and these were basically, we wanted to get some of the early ones. Uh, we wanted to get a few different kinds of scholarship and approaches. Uh, it wasn't particularly uh, programmatic how we picked these out. Yeah, no, just kind of uh, tried to do some research and figure out what were some you know, significant essays. Um, yeah. But, again, we're this isn't meant to be, like, each of these depicts a particular section of Frankenstein's scholarship, and it all sums it up together. It's a bit scattershot, which isn't a problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, and I think, you know, uh, we can definitely uh, admit and, and be honest about the fact that, like, neither of us has actually done, like thorough research into the Frankenstein field, right? No, it's, um, it's, it's an entire, I mean, it's an entire subfield. It has its own, uh, its own scholarship in a real way, which is, again, I just consider that a win. Yeah, no, <laughs> it is. It's good. It's fun to talk about things that, that have a lot of, uh, you know, history and, and uh, commentary on them. Oh yeah, no, but um. but also specifically every again every time I read someone like there's a line that gets quoted from an earlier critic in the uh, the Gilbert, which just uh, I, I had to get up and walk around the room. I was so annoyed. And again, Gil- Gilbert was not agreeing with it, but I, I can pull it up if um. you want. Yeah, please pull it up. I want to know what you're talking about. One second. It's uh... also I think. An earlier critic uh, said, like almost everything else about Mary Shelley's life, Frankenstein is an instance of genius observed and admired, but not shared. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, it sucks uh-huh. so much. Just Yeah, no, it's it's straight up, I mean, it's it's misogynist in no, it exactly is. the way that Gilbert and Gubar are, are talking about. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's, it's very much being held up as like, this is how critics have discussed... Uh, Mary Shelley. And so I, I, I really appreciated the uh, Gilbert and Gubar piece. Um, 
I said, Do you want to just start with that? Sure. Yeah, may as well. Nothing's yeah. stopping us. It's also got, I think, of one thing I just want to say as we go to it is that the biography element of this is really solid. Like it's gen- it's taking mm-hmm. uh, Shelley very seriously as a um, as an author, as a as a literary person who is engaging with the world around her, as well as her familial relationships, which are often I think foregrounded because I mean, frankly, she was related to or friends with a ridiculous swath of British poets and intelligentsia and radicals of the time. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and uh, I think, I guess we can probably assume both that people know what Frankenstein is, like have read it, um, and also know the the bare details of Shelley's biography. Or at the very least, um, I think that's something one can Wikipedia uh and, yeah. you know, and I, I recommend it. I think that Shelley's biography is really interesting. It's a snapshot of, uh, again, the sort of radical side of uh, English politics and art at that moment, or at least literature at that moment. Uh, her father was a utopian theorist who had some really wild ideas. Uh, Godwin, um, first name I cannot remember. Uh, William Godwin. William Godwin, the, thank you. It's the same as the little baby who gets killed in Frankenstein. <sighs> You know, I had also thought the of same that. as also <laughs> the same name as um one of Shelley's children who I think also died young. Yes, um, so uh, Shelley's uh, so yeah, that's Shelley's father, William Godwin. Her mother, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, is a major proto-feminist. Uh, she writes both. A, I think she wrote wrote uh, a work called "On the Rights of Women," uh, responding to you know, "On the Rights of Man" from the same period, and also on the I think wrong vindication, vindication, I think of, vindication the of, women, of the rights yes. of women, and also one about the wrongs of women, which is referenced in one of these. Uh, like, there's just a bunch of really interesting stuff from her, and then she dies in childbirth, giving birth to uh, Mary Jr. Yes. The, you know, yes. the author of Frankenstein. Um, actually, a, a biographical note that you see referenced in, like, three of these essays, I think, or at least two, uh, is that uh, Percy Shelley, Mary's husband and famous romantic poet, uh, and her would, like, meet up before they were, before they eloped at her mother's grave. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I what I've scene claimed is that they would have sex on her well, mother's grave. Yes. Yes. That um <laughs> that claim is not and quite stated in one of these pieces, but yes. The word lovemaking is used, which is <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Which is okay, look, it it's an ambiguous term. The word lovemaking has historically been used to mean like wooing. Yes. But also like at the same time given the kind of people they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. It's uh, no, they um, they had a passionate and, relationship in both good and, and she bad also, ways. She also would like go to her mother's grave just to like hang out and read books. I think before yes. she met Shelley, like when she was yes. a, ch- uh, a child. Um, yeah, no, she. I realize this is incredibly internet brain of me, but she's she is truly a gothic icon in every possible sense of the word. Yeah, no, I I think that's true. Um... So, okay, let's talk about Horror's twin, Mary Shelley's Monstrous Eve. Um, Yeah. So this is in a section of the book, uh, which is, let's see, what is the section overall title? Uh, How Are We Fallen? How Are We Fallen? How Are We Fallen? Milton's Daughters. Um, And so it's all about, like, basically the influence of Milton on 
19th century women writers. Um, yeah. Something along those lines. And, and kind of not just the influence, but the way in which Milton and, and Paradise Lost uh, establishes and, and like typifies this misogynist literary framework um, to which a woman writer has to have some kind of response. Yeah, because Milton is wildly misogynist in his, uh, in Paradise Lost and his other work and how he depicts uh, not just Eve in Paradise Lost, but also like sin is represented as horrifically feminine and that becomes an important part of this, uh, of this uh, chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the central, like, thesis of this chapter about Frankenstein, um, I think you can say, is is basically that that Frankenstein is in some way a rewriting of Paradise Lost. Um, yes. And that, uh, specifically, they lay out that there are two options for women writers, uh, for the 19th century woman writer, uh, with the rise of romanticism, um, which they, they outline, and this is kind of, uh, symbolized by the way that Milton's daughters are talked about in Middlemarch. Um, yeah, there's an opening section that's all about, uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch that sort of sets the scene. Yeah. And, and this sort of interesting, uh, also biographical detail, which is that uh, Milton went blind toward the end of his life, and so uh, his daughters, like, it seems, seems like there's some ambiguity as to, like, how exactly this happened. It almost like they may have been required to uh, learn yeah, yeah. ancient languages in order to read to him. But specifically, Um. they're represented as not understanding them, but being able to produce them, like, being able to read them phonically, but not understand the meaning of Latin and Greek, so that they are these sort of, like, perfect helpmeets. And this is, again, part of the fundamentally misogynist way that Milton is sort of the, I mean, the the patriarchal bard of English letters, where... uh, even when in his own life he relied on uh, women, they're represented as literally not understanding the words they're reading for him. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it is this like kind of almost like mythologized image. Yes. Uh, very like popular. Um, in, uh, uh, they say in the book, quite popular at the end of the 18th century and throughout the 19th. Yeah, one thing that's mentioned is that there is a uh, a record in the Journal of Percy Shelley, so Mary's husband, is that uh, when he moved into a new uh, location at some point and hung up some pictures he had, you know, allegorical paintings, things like that, one of them was of Milton's daughters reading to him. No, it's it's uh, it's Keats who did that. Oh, it's Keats, not she- uh, Percy. My bad. Uh, no, it's okay. I, I just, I happen to have, uh, like, bookmarked the yeah, page. Yeah, I, so. I just misremembered. Um... Yeah, so, and then uh, they, uh, the the authors of this piece, um, so they, they claim that, you know, essentially the 19th century woman writer is, is in this world uh, defined by Milton. Um, and then uh, there are, as they put it, uh, two options. Um, or or they, they, have, they have claimed for themselves two options. Um, and I'm just going to quote here. On the one hand, the option of apparently docile submission to male myths, of being, quote, proud to minister to such a father, unquote, 
and on the other hand, the option of secret study aimed toward the achievement of equality. Um, and they categorize Frankenstein in the first category, which does not mean that they see it as being like devoid of resistance to uh, to patriarchy, yeah. but rather that it's about sort of um, accepting Paradise Lost and then rewriting it uh, in order to almost like show what it is from a female point of view. Um, yeah, and one of the arguments they, they develop there that I think is sort of the, the overarching argument about the analysis of the novel uh, as like a text is that it's it's constantly referencing Paradise Lost. We that's very direct. The uh, the creature reads Paradise Lost as one of the like three books that he has access to while he's hiding at the DeLacy's house and is learning how to be a person, is learning uh, language and uh, like what society is like. And again, one of the works is Paradise Lost. Um, but at the same time, the uh, the chapter argues that you can't assign individual characters to individual roles. Uh, Victor Frankenstein is both uh, the innocent Adam at first who then falls. He is the uh, this prideful Satan who attempts to, uh, you know, create an overmaster and is overthrown by it. And he is as God to the Adam that is the creature. Meanwhile, the creature is uh, obviously Adam to, uh, you know, I ought to be thy Adam is a famous line from the book when the creature sort of like reproaches Victor for his absentee fatherhood. Um, and uh, the creature is also Milton Satan, you know, literally quotes Milton Satan as his own sort of model for his revenge. Uh, and then... I think this is a slightly thinner argument, is when he declares himself to be the master over Victor himself, takes on the position of uh, God in Paradise Lost. That one I find a little weaker, but all of the characters are very fluidly moving between these, especially those two, between these Miltonian figures. But then the interesting thing is, with this like sort of explicit evocation of Miltonian figures that uh, shows up in the text... Um, on the other hand, uh, the uh, Gilbert and Gubar see Eve as almost like uh, so so unmentioned as to be constantly present. Yes, um, that every character is in fact referencing Milton's Eve uh, more or less constantly. That Eve is sort of the ground reference in Frankenstein. That everything else is commenting on or handling. Yes. Yeah. And there's a, they reference a larger history of sort of, uh, I mean, first of all, treating Frankenstein as a woman's novel and therefore commenting on uh, women's experiences, also obviously pointing to uh, uh, Shelley's own uh, mother's writing, Shelley's, uh, you know, surrounding uh, politics as saying, well, she's probably commenting on that. And again, it's, it's uh, ex explicitly the main characters are male, the preacher and uh, Victor, but then the sort of argument is implicitly they are female, they're feminized, and uh, makes a really interesting connection to the way Milton feminizes Satan. Yes, yes. Um, because, I mean, for one thing, uh, Satan and Frankenstein both uh, give birth. Yes. Um, and give birth to monsters. It, yes, because in, in Paradise Lost, um, Satan like conceives sin literally like 
thinks, thinks of yeah think like and and sin is like this female creature who is uh born from satan's head yes his head swells um, up because if there's one thing milton liked more than misogyny it was puns yes like i, I um, genuinely and, <laughs> yes uh and and then he has sex with her like immediately and she conceives death and then there's this whole they become like a kind of evil trinity and there's this like horrifying incestuous violence um you can go read paradise lost for yourself too if you want to know what the hell i'm talking about it's nasty it's it's great though like i mean it's very compelling <laughs> in its awfulness. sorry just a bit really like and you can read more about it in paradise lost which well yeah you can you can, you can. i just oh. um and uh yeah so so there is this uh there there is this like connection between uh victor and satan and both of them and like femaleness in uh you know in like creating life yes um there's also and then also oh, sorry, go on. well i was just about to say that like victor's uh you know, his dangerous curiosity, um, his insistence on, uh, you know, discovering, uh, knowledge that is, that is dangerous. That, that itself is Eve-like. Yes. And there's also some discussion of, I mean, basically of the misogyny in, in Milton, of the way that Eve is sort of characterized from, uh, moment one, and the way that Eve's, uh, you know, um, supposedly innocent, but clearly already being judged, vanity, pride, and uh, curiosity are all the defining qualities of Victor Frankenstein. Yes, yeah, and and uh, I, I really like, like, this point that they make that, um, that uh, essentially uh, Eve, like, starts out fallen. Yes. Um, that... Uh, May not the story of the fall be for women the story of the discovery that one is not innocent and Adam as one had supposed, but Eve and fallen. So that like there yes. is this and this gets sorry. Like, oh, just that there is this like sense that uh everyone starts with that they are male, and then you kind of discover that you are female and that this has all of this baggage yes um, you uh, which they they explicitly parallel to freud which makes sense yeah yeah and like not in a, a super like not super positively about freud they're like and he perceived this as being basically a kind of envy rather than like the horrifying shock of realizing that society is going to treat you worse uh right. which is literally a thing that happens to the creature because the like defining moment of the creature is when the creature uh or at least the defining sort of early moment is when the creature is sort of asking why why am i not accepted why am i driven out why am i not uh, treated well and then realizes his origin when he reads victor's journal realizes how he was created and that therefore he is like fundamentally alone and separated out from the world that exists which again is being paralleled to a uh you know they're arguing that this is a um, a sort of uh, revisionist version of Eve's experience in the garden where she is uh, created to be lesser, created to be separate, created for the uh, sake of someone else and not in the image of the creator. 
Yeah, yeah. And there's something interesting that um, that they don't uh, quite point out in this piece, as I recall, mm-hmm. but um, that, uh, like, that um, the... That the creature's, like, first awareness of Frankenstein is by reading his journal. Yes. And uh, Shelley's only, in some sense, awareness of her own mother was by reading her writing. Yes. No, I don't think they explicitly point that out, but they do discuss the idea that Shelley's uh, understanding of herself, of her mother, uh, was deeply literary. It was shaped by her own reading, by the fact that she was only able, that she was able to get some degree of connection with her mother through reading her mother's writings and also her mother's library, which uh, included a lot of the kind of works that she goes on to reference. Yeah, one very interesting thing about Shelley is that it seems that she kept like a, a, a diary that was in some sense quite detailed, but that a lot of the detail was just what she was reading at the time. I mean, yeah, I know these people. I, I am friends with many of them. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think at one point they say something about, like, that her reading list would, like, do any graduate student Yeah, crowd. yeah. <laughs> um. uh, and I do want to point out that that is very, I think very explicitly in the way this piece is written, that is also about uh, revising the biography given of Mary Shelley. It's about saying, no, look, she is not just sort of moved by a nightmare and then produces this thing. She is literary, she is referencing things, she is uh, she is a, you know, a literate author who is engaging closely and personally with these themes. In, in a similar way that the, um, the theme of miscarriage and monstrous birth uh, is being associated with her biography in a somewhat more interesting way than I think uh, is often done. Yeah, because there's this... Uh... This interesting, um, like, this this preface, uh, I'm trying to find, like, the actual text of it, um, mm-hmm. yeah, um, that, uh, like, in, um, in the introduction to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. um, uh, Shelley, Mary Shelley, it's worth being specific, because uh, Percy Shelley wrote an introduction to the original, um, was it 1818? Yeah, 1818. 18. They're published about, like, 13 years apart. Yeah, so in that 31 edition, she refers to her book as My Hideous Progeny. Yes. There's, um, this is one... So, first of all, explicitly paralleling it to the creature and herself to Victor, but also, like, she herself was a mother. In fact, as Gilbert and Gubar point out, um, during the period when she wrote Frankenstein, she was almost continuously pregnant or nursing. Yes. Um, they also... Which is like... Oh, sorry, God. God. Yeah, they... <laughs> sorry, just thinking about undertaking the type of intellectual projects that she undertook while constantly pregnant and while losing, like, children. Like, yes. she had... Uh, she had children die very yes. young. Yes, one of... Um, they, they point out that namelessness is a major element of the creature. You know, uh, she referred to him as Adam in letters, but uh, not only was she very explicit, you know, explicitly did not name the creature in the book itself, but also uh, they point out that when other people, for example, there was a stage dramatization of... Um, of Frankenstein, and she, uh, where the lead actor who played the creature was credited as playing the role of 
underlined blank space, and she's like, yeah, you know, I approve of this way of naming the nameless. And they also point out that one of her uh, stillborn children that who was born, I believe, during the composition of Frankenstein, uh, was never named and lived only two weeks. So not stillborn, technically, yeah, I misspoke. Yeah. But so there's there's some yeah. very dark and deep connections to be made with uh, her biography, and they also point out that uh, Victor, during the lead up to the birth of his creature, is also in seclusion the exact same way that a pregnant pregnant woman would have been at the time was he like hides himself up in an attic he barely sees people he's keeping you know in his case it's because he's going out and robbing graves and uh, slaughterhouses and is hiding his terrible work but at the same time there's a very clear sort of social connection of isolation and a sort of uh you know driving mania and connection this feeling of something going on that then can give way to despair and, uh, I mean, there, there's, a, I think, a pretty common reading that you can say that uh, the way Victor goes from elation immediately to horror at the, the creature's birth is very directly a kind of postpartum depression. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's also, just as far as interesting parallels, which, um, do, do they explicitly bring up the uh shelley talks about uh like thinking about the novel in a in a dream in a nightmare and then like uh victor also has like a dream i don't think they bring that up explicitly but uh i mean look they're covering a lot of ground here (laughs) no that's true yeah but no no Um, it's and it's it's a strong uh argument for a lot of their theses that uh there's so many elements that support and reinforce it that they don't even have to bring up that are just present in the text that you know readers like ourselves can just uh bring into that connection yeah yeah yeah. i think honestly one of the things that surprised me about uh this chapter is it spends a lot more time uh explaining the events of paradise lost that are being paralleled than of Frankenstein's, assuming that you'll recognize the the beats of Frankenstein and that it can describe them much more sketchily than Paradise Lost, which I find really interesting. Not universally. There's some bits of Paradise Lost that it assumes you know already. Yeah, yeah. I I think that um, I I would say this this really assumes a familiarity with both. Oh guys. no, definitely. Um, I, I don't mean to say it doesn't. I just I certainly felt like. I was being uh, reminded, or in some cases told, because I don't have a great memory for Paradise Lost, uh, details of Paradise Lost much more often than uh, details of Frankenstein, where I could fill in a lot more of it. Maybe that's just because I know one of them better, so more of it surprised me and stood out. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, I don't know. Um, Yeah, another element of this that I found really interesting, and and this is something that they, they quote from another writer... Um, but then make their own connections with, is the idea that, uh, so James uh, Rieger, whom they're quoting, says about the monster that he has unique knowledge of what it is like to be born free of history. Um, and then they basically suggest that that itself is like a, like a feminine experience to be born, apparently, free of history. Um, to, to be... Uh, essentially to have um the history of the world like denied to you um and uh and and they also uh 
call that out as as an Eve-esque experience. Um, obviously, Adam and Eve are both created from nothing, um, but Adam gets these like uh, lectures from angels on the like the the you know heavenly history of what has happened so far, and also the, all the history to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Eve basically gets uh, Eve gets like put to sleep or avoided for these. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, no. So yeah, do we... Anything else we really want to touch on in this... Uh, in this uh, chapter? Well, is there anything you have to say about resonances with this and the idea of Frankenstein as science fiction? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, honestly, what I'd say is that because this is so intertextual, this is so much about the relationship between uh, Frankenstein and uh, Paradise Lost, it's a little bit less in that direction, but I don't think that makes it uh, not at all present there. It's just that the things this is most interested in, the intertextuality, the rewriting of Paradise Lost, are sort of orthogonal to that question of genre, that question of, of uh, sort of cognitive estrangement or uh, other science fictional terms, which doesn't actually make me think it's less interesting or less useful here. Um, I do think that... Yeah. Sorry, go on. I just, I think if I had to, like, make a link between this chapter and uh, the way I think about science fiction, I would say that there's maybe a suggestion that the the estrangement that is being evoked by the book the 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 feeling of estrangement that the book is trying to produce or um is something like the estrangement of being a female reader of yes women. and that connects very clearly to uh to the sort of chewian way of thinking about science fiction uh which will eventually we'll get around to reading uh do metaphors dream of literal sleep but uh so young chu argues that one of the main purposes of science fiction is to allow us to, and you know, I know you know this, but just for the, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. to allow us to uh, cognize and think through things that are already estranging, that things that are difficult to think about can be thought about more effectively through science fiction as a kind of metaphor. Uh, it's an interesting argument. It's an interesting book. We're going to get to it eventually. And I think the idea that, like, this is a way of allowing um you know of of confronting that estrangement is i think uh i think that's very a very uh solid argument but and this is where you know sort of choose argument that all literature is at least a little bit science fictional comes into play i think there's a lot right. of i mean you know women's literature that responds to the canon that responds to things like milton in precisely that way in pointing out that estrangement that isn't necessarily science fiction although i do think that oh, yeah. frankenstein is particularly good at it because of the way it uses science fiction yeah like i would say that this is where the fact that the creature is the type of like entity that he is really comes to the fore because yes. he he is he is the novum right yeah yeah no the, um. the creature is the one and excellent novum of uh of frankenstein and one of the longest lasting, um, like, you know, makes yeah. it into cinema, makes it into imagery. When we get to the, the I guess it's the next one we're doing, because it's the other uh, 79 essay, uh, the Stra uh, uh, Sternberg. Um, there's an interesting thing where, like, Frankenstein shows up as a term in Victorian, like, 
political commentary with very little reference to what makes the story interesting, but clearly a lot of, like, emotional force. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to just head there? Do you mind Go if there we now? pause recording briefly? I need to change the sensitivity because the people outside the building have gotten very loud. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah let, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. Um, yeah, let's let's move on to uh, Mary Shelley's Monster by Lee Sterenberg. Yes. Uh, I quite like this one, I should say. Uh, I mean, I, qu- I quite like the previous one as well, so... Um... Yeah, yeah, good, yeah, good hits. This um this article the the sort of central idea is that um the is that the monster or the creature um in some ways like is a metaphor for or really uh repeats reflects and, metaphors? Yeah, re rewrites, reworks pre-existing metaphors for the French Revolution. Yes, and this is a this is a not uncommon reading of uh, of Frankenstein that uh, the creature is this uh, sort of image of the French Revolution. That is to say, it's a an outcast or socially um, disenfranchised uh, entity who eventually rises up uh, and destroys its creator in something that destroys both of them. It's a very that reading makes it a very English depiction of the French Revolution. The sort of uh, horrified look from the outside, right? Yeah, and it's interesting to note that um, uh, the Shelleys, like, during their marriage, like, Percy Shelley was was a political radical. Um, and So was Mary at this time. At, at the time, but then uh, after his death, over the course of her life, she basically changed her mind. I mean, she literally writes, like, uh, since... Since Shelley's death, I am, like, less interested in the Radicals. Yeah, she, uh, and specifically the Radicals with a capital R as, like, a group of people. She doesn't yes, get along yes. with them. And I'm going to be honest, I think that, like, Suvin's discussion of Shelley is so inflected, because we, we mentioned that on a previous episode, it's so inflected by the fact that she explicitly said, I am no longer a Radical. Like, there's a, frankly, looking back, there's a sense of betrayal there. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, and uh, I think, you know, um, it's it's obviously worth emphasizing that that is not where she was in 1818. Yes. Um, she was not writing... Sorry, again, this is me getting mad at old scholars. Uh, this is not something that was written as a repudiation of radicalism. It was written while she still identified with uh, that faction. It was written while uh, Percy was alive, which is very much sort of seen as that, that cutting-off point. And you can argue that the 1831 edition has changed a number of things to make the radical implications of Frankenstein less present. I, I read a really interesting uh, sort of introduction and commentary on a scholarly edition of Frankenstein that was all about the changes made between the editions. Um, so you can argue that the 1831 Frankenstein is less radical or more conservative than the 1818. But in both cases, the core story is still the same, and it's the reading of it as a purely conservative story is something that this piece, uh, Sterenberg, really engages with and kind of disagrees with quite strongly. Yeah, yeah, but also uh, it's not... Something I think that's important is that, like, mm-hmm. you know, she's writing at a time when essentially the French Revolution has failed. 
right? Yes. Um, and this uh, is after Bonapartism, and I exactly. think the end of Bonaparte as well. Yeah. Um, and and the you know um, like the Shelleys in France, they like made visits to kind of uh, revolutionary, um, like I don't know what you'd call it, like uh, sites, uh, tourist but, locations. Yes, exactly. But but they do that as tourists, right? Yes, it's, it's not an active political project because that political project has ended. Yes. Um, uh, and it's it's worth noting that Percy Shelley also, uh, he wrote a number of pieces uh, that do depict failed revolutions, you know, heroically failed, but failed revolutions. This is something that the whole family is at this point very well aware of and thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the, it's, so essentially the, the, um... The images that uh, this piece talks about, um, one of them is, and, and the first one discussed, is like conservative images of the revolution and of the, the Jacobins, the revolutionaries, as um, monsters. Yes, and not uh, just the Jacobins. This is, this is important. Also, oh, yes. also God, Godwinians, Godwinists, uh, the political adherence of Shelley's own father, William Godwin, who is often depicted as being a radical who wanted to make the horrible French Revolution kind of things happen in England. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Burke, who is like the conservative, the arch conservative, um, uh, called Godwin's opinions pure defecated atheism, the brood of that putrid carcass, the French Revolution. Um, and and this uh, this imagery of uh, radical thought as like not just monstrous but like growing out of death. Uh, yes, you know the um, the uh, the grave bursts open and the uh, the monstrous revolution comes out. Yes. Um, or actually, and I think the the one of the metaphors that is used is it's the monster is coming from the tomb of the royal family. The body parts used for you know this hypothetical monster, the specter, is in some ways the specter of the French royal family, who having been executed, produce this like uh, this evil ghost of republicanism that r runs around you know uh, destroying Europe. Yes, yes. Um, and then, uh, you know, there is also, um, the, uh, uh, there's also, like, um, I don't know what you, like, radical writings, um, that are, in, in yes. some sense, almost pro-revolutionary, that also depict the imagery of the revolutionary monster, Yes, um, uh, I think the really interesting example that is being drawn from here is uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote uh, about, you know, this. I mentioned this idea of the wrongs of women. Uh, she wrote about uh, monstrosity in the French Revolution specifically as, well, can you blame them? This is what they've been driven to. A Not an attempt to say it was, you know, good to be putting people's heads on sticks and running around with them, but saying okay, but you understand why this happened. This happened because of them being subjected to cruel situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, she, uh, quoting from the, the, the article or 
the book. I don't know if it's an article or a book, um, but it is titled An Historical and Moral View of the Origin and Progress of the French Revolution, um, written in 1794. Uh, she says that, um, you know, the that the revolutionaries have been, quote, depraved by the inveterate despotism of ages. So they are depraved, right? But it's been done yes. to them by, uh, you know, the ancien regime. Yes. And uh, so Sternberg argues that this gives us two models of the monster that uh, Shelley will take and combine and redefine in Frankenstein, which are both defined by external forces. Either the revolution is like a an evil spirit that is spoken into people and they become possessed by it and it makes them evil, or the external forces are the social conditions that make them, uh, that deprave them in the sense that they're willing to do anything to get out of them. Um, and the interesting kind of uh, twist, like what Shelley uh, does to like synthesize and transform these images is that she psychologizes them, uh, turns them internal, and makes them about, like, a rebellion against the bourgeois family, um, rather than against, uh, you know... The bourgeois, or the the monarchist state. Yeah, yeah. The the royalist state, yeah. Yeah, Um, and also, I want to point out that something I find interesting here is that, at the same time, only one of those two perspectives appears in Frankenstein itself. There's never an idea that, like, evil has been, you know, inculcated in either Victor or the monster by, like, some outside evil force speaking to them. Uh, if they do evil, it's the only theory of external influence given is the social one. Uh, as this, as Sternberg points out, uh, where Victor is a romantic, because he's talking about, like, his agonies and his internal crises, the monster is an enlightenment figure. He talks about the social conditions that created his, uh, his you know, murders. The, the creature makes an eloquent, and frankly, just one of the tour de forces of the novel, is the creature's eloquent argument for his own rights and for the fact that his acts of depravity have been a result of his social conditions— which is also an idea that appears elsewhere in the novel from very sympathetic figures as well. So, on some level, I think that the even-handed Sternberg treatment that's like, these two ideas get combined and remixed is, I think, a really interesting way of looking at it, but I feel like it's very clear that the Wollstonecraft position is much more strongly represented. Yeah, yeah, like, um, you know, I I think uh, the... Like he he talks about um, the the sort of um, the contrast in what Victor and the creature do versus how they speak. Um, there is mm-hmm. considerable irony in this stylistic reversal. The novel assigns to Victor the conventional role of the experimenting philosoph scientist, but he raves like a mad demon. Conversely, the novel assigns to the creature the role of the mad Jacobin demon risen from the grave to spread havoc abroad. But he talks like a philosoph, indicting the social system for the suffering it causes individuals. So I think that's like an interesting reversal. Chiasmus? As, yeah, chiasmus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think then, you know, the question has to be like, what exactly, uh, you know, what takes primacy, right? Like basically yes. plot or style of speech. And I, 
I mean, I think for a romantic author, it has to be the latter, right? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I would say that one of the reasons why I, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I really like Shelley. I'm a novel guy. I'm, I'm less of a poetry guy. I do appreciate poetry, but I read and write about novels when I get the chance. And uh, I think that Shelley's, the rhetoric and the plot come together in very interesting ways. Um, the rhetoric is always kind of necessary to interpret the plot, given the ambiguities and multiple layers of storytelling going on to give you the plot. But the plot does yeah. still, like, fundamentally matter. Victor did still, no matter how his, like, personal guilt or personal absolution goes in his internal monologues, and they go a lot of places, as is commented on in this, uh, he's still did the thing he still created the creature and the creature still has a has a right to demand something of him for that yeah yeah um uh but no you're totally right that like if we're going okay are we privileging the fact that the monster's running around killing people or the fact that the monster makes an eloquent argument for its rights i agree the eloquent argument is what matters more in frankenstein as a novel yeah, and like it's uh it's or or his people are ambiguous with this one and uh I, I don't think it's an incorrect ambiguity. Um yeah. how how to gender the monster. The mon yeah. the monster. <laughs> um anyway, uh you know, his his speech um to Victor uh takes up what is it, almost a quarter of the book? Yes, it's like a quarter of the book and uh it is by far the longest like other than Victor's own narrative, which takes up, you know, obviously includes that and all of the other little narratives and so on, uh, takes up and thus takes up the majority of the book, but no other sub-narrative comes close to the size of the creature's, like, autobiography. Yeah, yeah. And I do think it's correct to say that, um, in some sense, uh, that Frankenstein takes, like, political external conflicts and you know makes them very personal and psychological yes um, the the creature does not have class consciousness because he is like almost literally like a class of his own yeah there is no the, there's no one else like him and that's kind yes. of the point yeah no in a, in a certain sense he's a it's while he speaks about social forces and talks about the position anyone like him would be in he is also talking about himself as a unique entity. It's very romantic in that sense. It's It has that political framework and understanding. In fact, the creature talks about how, you know, uh, people who are, you know, oppressed or miserable are, are friendless and are treated poorly. Therefore, I, who is both most miserable and most friendless, am treated the most poorly. Yeah, he's he, he sees himself as a kind of symbol, but but as a symbol, not... Um, not as someone who can be in solidarity with others because yes. others don't provide solidarity to him to be clear. yes yeah uh no i th and i think that the um an interesting place that it goes from there uh from this sort of uh frankenstein as symbol is to the use of frankenstein as i as i mentioned earlier in political cartoons and descriptions and the fact that uh that frankenstein and the interesting thing is 
As you've been speaking, you've done the typical thing of referring to the creature as, as Frankenstein. Frankenstein. That's which because they cartoons... use it that way. Yes. Yes, they do. They do. I, I just yes, I yes. think it's so interesting because I think people tend to think that that confusion or conflation comes from like the the one movie, yeah. but but clearly it doesn't. Ah, um. uh, yeah. No, the uh, if I can do a, a little bit of a sidebar, there's a a bit in an essay we didn't read for this but that i think is really interesting which is uh, china medieval's uh the politics of monsters um where he argues that the thing that makes a monster like really survivable and continue down through the ages and get reused is the degree to which you can vacate its original meaning and still have something compelling and polysemous that is to say something you can assign to multiple different meanings just because the monster itself is kind of cool. <laughs> and, like, like the argument is that uh, there's a bunch of medieval monsters that nobody remembers because they're all really obvious moral statements and don't have a lot going on, like, visually or in terms of, like, their behavior that makes them interesting to write about. So they were very popular at a time when that specific moral statement was held, but then they vanish into the mists of time, whereas the monsters that really stick around are the ones that you can boil down to a kind of flat physical description. Uh, vampires being a great example. The vampire is undead and drinks blood to live, and everything else is negotiable. It could mean scary foreign sexuality. It could mean capitalism. It could mean, uh, you know, uh, abusive high school boyfriends. There's all these things that a vampire can be. But yeah, fundamentally, yeah. it's a guy with fangs, and he's here to drink your blood, and all of the metaphors derive from the fact that he lives by drinking your blood. Or she. There's plenty of uh, female vampires as well. And so one of the things that's fascinating about the creature and about Frankenstein, like the kind you get a Halloween costume of that's Boris Karloff with the big flat head and the bolts, is that Frankenstein's creature is such a specific conceptual entity, such a character, such a meaningful part of Shelley's, you know, romantic myth-making and discussion of the, like, I mean, the nature of motherhood and, uh, and sort of political revolution, all these things going on. But the version that survives into common consciousness is not Frankenstein's creature, but rather the Frankenstein, the yeah. green guy, or in the case of these uh, cartoons, all all look pretty Irish, and some of them are literally Irish, and that's weird and racist. Uh, thanks, uh, Britain. Um, <laughs> there, I mean, yeah, these are all, like, conservative political cartoons. Yes. Um, uh, and and uh, it's interesting, they mostly seem to depict the monster as huge. Yes. That, that seems to be the defining characteristic. Yeah, I don't see any stitches or, like, weird... There's huge and kind of, like, hairy and brutish, like one of them kind of has a hunchback, but... No, I think big guy is a lot of what they got from big fake guy. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> so, anyways, yeah, I think I think politics of monsters is a very interesting look at. Uh, obviously, Mievel being a science fiction author as well as a like uh, as a Marxist, mostly approaches these things from the sort of the position of the author and how do you create things in a certain way. But I think he has a very good point that, and, but not solely, and I think he has a very good point that monsters sort of take on a life of their own as a polysemous, like, stock character, a figure that you can work into new versions and new uh, approaches. And Frankenstein's creature in particular 
entered science fiction and entered popular discussion as a stock figure of like the thing you've let loose the um you know like the the 19th century version of the story of the golem of prague uh gets merged into the frankenstein story very sort of seamlessly to create the you have created a frankenstein and now it's going to kill you story yeah <sighs> so i feel that it would be a sort of natural to move to the striker piece yeah, I think that's probably uh, fair. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a reasonable segue. I'm just trying to think if there's anything else uh, in the uh, Sterenberg. Um, I I guess the one thing I do want to say is that uh, um, I think that the Sterenberg, by focusing on the, the psychological side, the idea that the monster is sort of this, in the internal struggle within the creature, within Victor, becomes the locus of this question of good and evil and of the destruction or uh, preservation of the bourgeois family um, as the sort of crux of this monstrosity. Uh, I think that's a really interesting reading. I do think that there is a pretty straightforward and functional reading where the monster is still the french revolution but one that is uh that has this sort that where the failure was not guaranteed from the start where if the creature had received a different kind of parenting he would have been able to be a citizen in society would have been able to come into his own and his own powers but because he was denied becomes an unstoppable force of destruction. Uh, the Enlightenment citizen is perfectly capable of being greater, perhaps, than things that have come before, but being denied by monarchism becomes a monster. The Enlightenment didn't fail, it was failed. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that is, um, this is not the only piece or, or the first to uh, discuss this connection. Yes. Uh, it just happens to be the one that we read. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's a good one. I think it does a, a good job. I think it brings in the biography in interesting ways. Um, I do think it's a little bit uh, weird that it opens with... Uh, Shelley was responding to her father Godwin with this, and then later on it goes on to say, also she was reusing direct uh, ideas of her mother's that are much more directly applicable to this and that her mother wrote herself, and it's sort of like, I think one of these was more important than the other, and I don't think it's the order you gave them. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. Um, like, Wollstonecraft's writing does seem more uh, directly relevant. Um I think maybe the temptation is to talk about Godwin because he's, like, considered a more prominent uh, radical figure. Yeah, because, because Burke is... monstered Godwin. Yes, exactly. <sighs> um, so, uh, so speaking of, of monstering as, like, a process <laughs> that can be done to a person. You know, um, fair so enough. So, the, uh, the next piece we're going to talk about is... Uh, you know, My Words to Victor Frankenstein by Susan Stryker, which is a... So it was originally given as a talk, um, it, or like I said, almost a, like a performance um, at a conference, um, conference called Rage Across the Disciplines, um, held in 1993. And it's... I Sorry, I just realized that all of the uh, World of Darkness werewolf stuff that was called Rage Across 
region space came after this, and I'm assuming there's no causal connection there, but it would be kind of amazing if, like, Rage Across Canada was a descendant of Rage Across the Disciplines. I would be shocked. However, I would too. I don't think that was going through their heads, no. Yeah. Um so it's uh it's in like several different sections um that are each like kind of headed with the, their genre. Um so there's there's monologue, criticism, journal, uh journal which kind of turns into poetry although they're not marked out from each other. Uh and then the piece ends with theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it is about uh, theorizing this idea of transgender rage and what is, what is like distinctively transgender about rage or what, t- what rage could be understood as distinctively transgender. Um, I do want to point is, out that, sorry, go on. And, and in what way is the, uh, the Frankenstein creature's rage like, symbolic of that in what way are we as transgender people frankenstein's creature go on Mm -hmm. oh i was just going to say that the the sort of farrago form where different modes are being uh connected together is very explicitly being connected directly to frankenstein's creature being made of various parts yeah absolutely um and uh the the first sentence of the monologue um just like a a total shots fired is the transsexual body is an unnatural body um which like she says this uh standing on the stage there's a a first there there is actually something called introductory notes which comes before monologue which tells you about the kind of uh visual performance that striker was doing and like how she was dressed um she describes what she was wearing as gender fuck drag uh, and her, her jacket um, has stickers on it reading sex change, dyke, and fuck your transphobia. Um, so, you know, uh, some, some really dramatic statements uh, just starting from moment one. Um, and she goes on to talk about essentially what we would call today turfism um, mm-hmm. and basically uh, people who position... Uh, transgender people she she uses the word transsexual um specifically in the way people would use it in the 90s to refer to people who've had gender confirmation surgery um although i don't think that her theory uh i mean she calls it performing transgender rage um which she intends she says this in a footnote as more of an umbrella term that includes the transsexual and also other forms of trans experience um Anyhow, uh, but she's obviously using uh, specifically surgery as an important, like, image because it is also the image that uh, evokes, you know, the um, sutured together uh, hybrid shape of Frankenstein's creature. Um, And... You know, um, the so the beginning of this is basically uh, claiming the stigma of being a Frankenstein's monster, um, claiming the stigma of being, uh, you know, a patchwork. Um, and and also, also sp- sorry, specific- well, also naming no. like the violence of that. Mm-hmm. 
I, I was going to say it's also very specifically using the term unnatural and bringing, like, from moment one, like you say, but also very specifically, I think that a lot of the, um, a lot of the theory descends from this idea of natural versus unnatural, with Frankenstein's creature being a, you know, uh, palpably unnatural, like, you know, literary figure. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and, uh, uh, the also even, uh, like, creature and monster, these are also, um, like, words that are important. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, so that's monologue, that kind of, um, declaration of intent. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I don't totally understand the distinction she's drawing between criticism and theory. I think, sorry, let me, I think that the defining difference is that the criticism section is uh, very specifically about readings of Frankenstein. Mm, And the theory section is about a more general, like, uh, is a more general theory that by that point has gone pretty far afield of the book. It's about morality it's about one's you know sort of place in society and relationship to it it's no longer uh really about frankenstein the novel it's about like the frankenstein that we've been talking about the the symbol that appears in society and that can be responded to now that it's been situated with this originary creature that is much more sympathetic intelligent able to make its case than the sort of uh generic Frankensteinian, uh, you know, the, the Boris Karloff version, right? Who literally yeah. cannot speak. Yes. Yeah. And, and she, it's in the criticism that she explicitly sort of explains what's going on with the title, with the idea that, uh, you know, um, she, like the creature, has, uh, I, I mean, literally uh, read what uh, her creators, in the sense of, like, um, you know, doctors, uh, the purveyors of the medical science that um, affords mm-hmm. the transsexual body, um, like, she knows what uh, those creators think of her. Um, that evokes rage. Um, and uh, that is something that, like, must speak in the way that the creature does in his monologue. That's That's the... Um, words above the village of Chamonix, that is that monologue that takes up a quarter of the book. Yes. I think there's an interesting thing here in this section as well, which is that uh, her reading of Frankenstein is kind of opposite the, uh, the previous reading, or at least some of the elements of it that we discussed, in that she reads the creature as a rebuke to uh, enlightenment values and enlightenment science in particular is a knowledge producing system. Uh, yes. You know, she says, um, uh, Shelley's text is informed by and critiques from a woman's point of view, the contemporary reordering of knowledge brought about by the increasingly compelling truth claims of enlightenment science. And that is, uh, that critique is not really what is being presented in the sort of idea of, no, the creature is the philosoph, is the Enlightenment subject who believes in these Enlightenment claims and is using them to challenge uh, his abjection. Yeah, yeah. She, she takes uh, Victor very straightforwardly as a scientist. Yes, which um, 
that's a whole interesting discussion that I want to put a pin in for the fourth essay. Yes. No, definitely. Um, uh, but, but she does, I mean, um, she takes him as a scientist and one whose work is like an attempt to master, uh, you know, the world around him. Yes. Um, and that, that mastery ultimately fails because he, he can't control the creature. Yes. It's, this is, you know, we, we discussed in Mad Woman in the Attic that like both Victor and the creature are, are feminized, have that, uh, that critique in here. This reading basically is like, nope, Victor's a bad dad. He's an asshole. Um, yes. Yes. At, while and, the, and, sorry, go on. And, and, and on some level, like medical science is a bad dad. Yes, um, exactly. No, I, th- I think that's a very, a very good way of saying Victor is standing in for medical science. The fact that he is this, like, that he's bad at it in a lot of ways, that he's not helpful, that he's a terrible father, etc., is then reflecting back onto the larger, more professional, but not necessarily uh, less uh, cruel or controlling medical science. Again, by this reading of Victor. And I think this is a good, actually, way, as she does in the piece, to move on to journal, um, which is also about, like, a direct encounter with medical science, um, but mm-hmm. a, a very different one, right? Because this is not about... That her encounter is not literally her own um, surgery, uh, but rather uh, the birth of her lover's child, um, mm-hmm. in which she is like intimately involved. Um, and so this is her. I I think we can probably imagine. I, I imagine it is in some way edited for performance, um, but I also find it very believable that it's not that edited. Um, because it is a very personal piece of writing. Um, and the, uh, the, the rage that is evoked in this experience for her is, um, sort of a, like, it, it initially appears as a, a rage against the idea that she, you know, she doesn't have, like, the the reproductive system of a cis woman she will never be able to give birth um that she's she's had the closest possible experience she's like sat behind um kim her lover giving birth and like felt the contractions against her own pelvis um and yet she can't ever truly have that experience which is clearly something she desires uh but ultimately the the rage that she feels is not truly, I think, against that kind of um, physical incapacity, um, but rather against the moment um, that she experiences right after that, like, deep connection, uh, which, of course, is the moment when someone holds up the child and says, it's a girl, Mm -hmm. um, which is just this fundamental primal violence. Um, And that is something that she reaches in the theory section yes i think she describes it as being the sort of the the violence and violation that is required for a uh for a person to be considered a subject to be allowed into the uh the world of of society there's this line here that i find really interesting which is uh actually um it's the one that starts with uh, how can finding oneself prostrate on the next uh the next paragraph after it's a girl 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, that goes to uh, two sentences. Would you mind reading it? Because it's way outside of my lane. <laughs> sure. I think Thank you're you. allowed to directly quote people, but I will read it. Thank you. How can finding oneself prostrate and powerless in the presence of the law of the Father, capitalized, not produce an unutterable rage? What difference does it make if the father, in this instance, was a pierced, tattooed, purple-haired, punk fag anarchist who helped his dyke friend get pregnant? Uh, Phallogocentric language, not its particular speaker, is the scalpel that defines our flesh. Is that how far you wanted me to go? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. It's uh, about that far. It's it's the specific distinction of, like, here is this idea of the law of the father, the sort of, uh, the organizing principle of patriarchy, right? Um which is here also sort of uh, has, I guess, recruited nature. There's a discussion of sort of the, the hegemony of nature earlier on as its rhetorical and, uh, and material like uh, enforcement mechanism that then comes through uh, these naming of distinctions, these, these establishing uh, concepts. And the fact that it really doesn't matter what the guy in question is in fact, even if he's as far removed as possible from that uh, structure, it still makes itself present through the culturation of the people involved, through the social forces around them. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think, yes, so in the journal section, when she reaches that it's a girl moment, yeah. um, she says, it's a girl, somebody said. Paul, I think. Um, and Paul being the you know, uh, fag who helped his dyke friend get pregnant. Um, so in some sense, the father of the child, but also I think in another sense, not a father at all. Right. Because mm -hmm, there's, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily implied that Paul is going to like live with this girl, yeah. bring her up. Um, and it's almost as though she just has to assume that it's Paul who says it's a girl because someone in the room said it. And it is clearly the utterance of the father to say that. Mm -hmm. um even though there really isn't what that n no one in that room truly is like capital t capital f the father yeah um in fact nobody could be that's that's not a thing a human being can be yes exactly um uh i also think it's very striking this is not something that she underlines with like uh you know with with like red ink but um yeah. She says about um, this, you know, uh, compulsory gendering, this was the act accomplished between the beginning and the end of that short sentence in the delivery room, it's a girl, which I think what she means when she says between the beginning and the end is we're talking about it. Yes. It's a girl. And that is so resonant with the creature, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, you, you mentioned the, the, am, the ambiguity of pronouning the creature. Yes. Um, and it's like, there is this tiny brief moment where the baby is an it, and in that sense is just a baby. Um, but is also, is also being sort of treated as, as just a biological object until being given this sort of, I don't mean in a positive sense, I mean that like, you know, this discussion of it as a dehumanizing pronoun in right. this same piece. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, in order to be a person, the baby has to be a girl or a boy. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, it's, it's very, like, this, there is this, in 
Sorry, go it, on. it makes me think of the the thing that you'll sometimes hear from like turfs. They'll call themselves like women born women, and it's like, well, you weren't born a woman. You were born, you were a, born, a, born baby. a baby, exactly. You know, um, and to be clear, this is like this is not just being depicted as like, oh yeah, this is how society works, and I disagree with it. It's being called some. It's being described as uh, l- lower uh, the universal cultural rape of all flesh. Like yes. this is being depicted as a fundamental and horrific violation that is also just something that happens to everybody within our society yes and and it's not something that exclusively happens to transgender people yeah um and uh you know uh she she makes that clear by saying that um you know uh confronting the implications of this constructedness of gender can summon and of up the, the natural order. I think it's important yeah, sorry. that's the gender phrase and, used. Gender and the natural order can summon up all the violation, loss, and separation inflicted by the gendering process that sustains the illusion of naturalness. My transsexual body literalizes this abstract violence. Um, so, like, transsexuals, um, or transgender people more broadly, um, mm-hmm. as she might put it, uh, kind of bring the like make evidence the violence of gender but the violence of gender is done to everybody Mm -hmm. yeah the the next line starts with as the bearers of this disquieting news uh the idea that a lot of transphobia is driven by a desire to reassert that this naturalness is not constructed yes exactly which is you know, she's responding specifically to TERFs here, not to necessarily a, a patriarchy that has its various other and also that reasons for uh, establishing this, but to people for whom that disquieting moment seems to uh, dislocate their own identity, who may already have issues with the way things are constructed, but have not gone as far as to, to challenge that naturalness. Yeah, and this is, like, when, when she talks about, in, in the monologue at the beginning, when she's, uh, you know, confronting what what has developed in the modern day into turfism, um, she really is confronting very directly her own queer community, the Seattle queer community, which she blames for the recent suicide of a transgender woman. Yes, um, and said uh, said woman had specifically mentioned feeling like Frankenstein's monster in her yes. suicide note exactly um so uh yeah and i i find this also i mean unsurprisingly deeply resonant with the mad woman in the attic chapter mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i think the, you know sorry go on no please continue i think the one interesting point that it seriously diverges from the mad woman in the attic chapter that is interesting to me and so i i don't want to get in the way of you talking about the similarities first so I can hold on to it. Oh, no, no. I mean, when I said resonant, I, I mean, like, the contrasts as well as the connections. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't have an immediate thing to say, just that they are resonant, oh, okay. so please. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that this never discusses Victor as, uh, in some way, transgender. Because yes. that's no, one of true. the classic, I mean, the kind of turfy classic reading of Frankenstein that uh, is a feminist reading, but is one that I think is, for pretty good reasons, falling out of uh, interest is the idea that, oh, 
Frankenstein is a story of a man treading in, not in God's domain, but in woman's domain. He wanted to give birth to totally exclude women. He didn't involve his fiancée, who is also his cousin and was raised as his sister, so there's a lot going on there. Um, he, but he did not involve woman in reproduction. Instead, he tried to claim that for himself, and therefore that is the actual sin that uh, Mary Shelley is sort of depicting. And this presents Mary Shelley as sort of like a you know, a turf avant la lettre, someone who's like really mad at the idea that men might try to do this. And there's versions of that that are a lot more sympathetic or like functional, which is like, well, no, it's about medical science want being patriarchal, being masculinized and trying to, you know, do away with the existence of the feminine entirely and things like that. But it is interesting that in this version, Victor Frankenstein is only male. Yes, no, it's true. Um, and, uh, I, I think, like, that is, um, and, you know, uh, Stryker's piece is very famous, so I can't be the only person to have thought of this. I'm sure this has already been written, but I think there is, like, a transmasculine response that, like, hovers in the background here, um, because if, if we are to think about, uh, Victor as a pregnant man, like, I think you have to think about that, right? Um... And, uh, yeah, I, I think, like, the big, the, the big, like, similarity that I would see between the Mad Woman in the Attic piece and this one is almost, like, the way that, the way that, um, Shelley is working out Eve and making everything mm -hmm. Eve, yeah. um, is what Stryker is doing with the creature, um, and, uh, making the creature much like Eve, like, sort of infinitely flexible, um, to, like, represent all the the different places that Stryker goes, you know? Yeah, it's... The creature is polysemic. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um. Yeah, and I think that there's... I think it is very interesting also that we have not yet brought up, although I, I think we will in the fourth piece uh, as well, so this is sort of a prelude, uh, The Bride. The, yes. um, the creature's uh, hypothetical mate and counterpart, the Eve to his Adam that he demands Victor create and that Victor gets very close to creating but spoils that last instant, refuses to bring her to life because he realizes that this will create a, you know, he or at least he decides that this will create a race of creatures that then might overwhelm and sort of in a pre-Darwinian, since that wasn't around yet, but overwhelm and destroy humanity and replace them. And that that sort of, that fear is why he will not create the female creature. He condemns the creature to isolation, and this is what leads to the creature killing his entire family, or most of it. He's already killed William, but killing uh, uh, Victor's uh, wife on their wedding day, and ultimately leads to the destruction of both of them. Please, you need to be specific on their wedding night. Yes, uh, he says it is... he specifically says, "I will be with you on your wedding night." Because if there's anything that hasn't been dis that isn't present here, it's definitely homoeroticism. Yeah, no, we haven't even touched the homoeroticism of this book, <laughs> but it, it's certainly there. And Stryker like kind of uh, touches on it briefly, um, but also is like, "Okay, well, that's not what I want to write about." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, or talk about, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, no, it is, like, I think very interesting that, um, this, like, uh, 
denial of reproduction to the creature is something that seems resonant for Stryker, but that she, it's mm-hmm. not a line that she draws explicitly. Yes. Um, I think in part because she is a creature with a lover and a child, and she actually already has a child from a previous marriage. Mm. Um, and so I, I think this is in some ways the kind of hope of transgender rage uh, that, like, we are not actually... Uh, we are, we are not actually uh, doomed to die at the North Pole in a battle with our <laughs> doctors. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I also think that this being a very personal meditation, a very personal piece, those just aren't anxieties she feels. Like she is not. Yeah concerned about a lack of partner she is not concerned about a a sort of separation from family in fact she's very clear that she has a family she's uh she describes its members who are present for this birth there is in a sense a already a guarantee of social futurity and so she's focusing on uh on personal identity, on one's opposition to the, these powers that control one, but not that specific element of Frankenstein or of human experience. Yeah, I think if she does talk about isolation, it's in that um, it's it's uh, in that earlier discussion of Felisa Vistima, or I, I I've not heard of this uh, woman outside of this piece, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because um, like. A suicide that rocked Seattle in 1993 is just one in a long string of, like, yeah. uh, terrible tragedies. Um, so I, I don't know. I didn't know about this woman before reading this piece. Um, yeah. But not because... Anyway, um... I don't but, think... Like, you, you don't need to justify not knowing about something that happened when you were one. That's true. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just feel bad because there's, um, there's clearly a sense in this piece that she is uh, referring to something that is that her the people in her audience know or should know about yes um, and ultimately that she is uh calling out um the way that this person uh was isolated yes um but she doesn't i think talk explicitly about isolation because because she is like, she's not isolated yeah at least she not is not, not in a social sense i think that where isolation occurs in this piece it is about the fact that he ha- she had these i think she describes like a dark welter of emotions on hearing it's a girl on hearing that gendering that she then had to sort of go and take some alone time to process she you know went and uh went home and cried and sort of had to figure out why she was crying at such a, a joyful moment in a, in a sort of material sense um and to some extent her isolation as depicted in this piece, is entirely... I mean, it's very romantic with a capital R. It's, you're feeling so many emotions, you go off into the mountains to think about them where you meet the creature. Yes, and she explicitly says that uh, when she is in the journal section, especially the part where it is poetry, she says she's using the images of romanticism. Yes. Um. But at the same time, that's not... that. That's It's a voluntary isolation to deal with these ideas rather than an involuntary social isolation. Yes. (sighs) 
well, heavy, heavy stuff. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, but, but bracing. Um, yeah. I could, uh, go on to the Frankenstein barrier. Sure. Sure. Sorry. Just the, the, I could go on to the Frankenstein barrier, but not beyond that. <laughs> okay, so the Frankenstein barrier, which is the uh, the Slusser piece from 1992 uh, from Fiction 2000, which is how we got confused about that. Yes, uh, yes. Which I read this a while ago. I think I must have read it in undergraduate uh, or possibly uh, like earlier proto like just as i was going into into graduate studies and i'll be honest i remembered this being better it's not terrible but it is approaching things in ways that i think i find less exciting now okay well i i think i summarized the last piece basically so do you want to roughly summarize this one sure uh so the way I remembered it, and I think the thing that gets brought away from it, is the idea that it's theorizing the Frankenstein barrier, which is a, I'd say, a cognitive block within the production of... Oh, actually, can we do one more thing about the uh, the striker? Oh, go ahead, yeah. I want to reflect back the question you asked me earlier, which is, what is science fictional here? Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. Um, and, I mean... Uh, I think on some level, you know, what's interesting is in, in, um, when we read, uh, Chitri Ronai, yeah. I pointed out times when he was like, and transgender <laughs> people are science fictional. Right, right. And I, I was oh, like, yeah, this yeah. is, this is silly. But I actually think that Stryker might have agreed with that kind of perspective at this time because, um, I mean, not in the sense that transgender people, like, they're so futuristic. Yeah, have have just started to exist or something like that. Um, My Zoidberg era. Sorry, go on. <laughs> um, but I do think that uh, there's there's something here about like uh, the transgender person as a figure who literalizes a conflict. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Exists everywhere, right? No, um, I, I did see that and thought, oh, that's, uh, that is also So Young Chu's uh, analysis, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's also a, a fascinating little footnote that I think is in, oh? connects to this. Yeah, it's the, the last footnote. Um, so it's to the sentence, Though we forgo the privilege of naturalness, we are not deterred, for we ally ourselves instead with the chaos and blackness from which nature itself spills forth. Which... By the way, weird way of deploying the word blackness, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. It was 1993. Um, <laughs> Sorry, go uh, on. But then the footnote to that is, although I mean chaos here in its general sense, it is interesting to speculate about the potential applications of scientific chaos theory to model the emergence of stable structures of gendered identities out of the unstable matrix of material attributes and on the production of proliferating gender identities from a relatively simple set of gendering procedures. So she's interested oh. in the idea of using chaos theory as a, you know, a, a, a way of theorizing gender. Um, yeah. Which I hope she went on to write that. <laughs> that is, oh, that is both such a, like, uh, you know, theorist uh, footnote where it's like, there's this one STEM thing I think is interesting and I have some knowledge about. And, you know, maybe that could be a really useful, like, way of doing this, but I don't have time to do that here. And also the exact same sentence, but science fiction author. 
being like, yes. oh man, I bet you could write a book about this, but I don't have time here. Yeah, absolutely. Also, like, thinking chaos theory is, like, the coolest thing under the sun. That's okay, very that's science the ni- author. Well, that's very 90s. It is. It absolutely it was, is. Listen, life uh, finds a way. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Um, Speaking of things that have the Frankenstein barrier real front and center. Yeah, so, so what is the Frankenstein barrier? <laughs> so the Frankenstein barrier is basically the idea that there is a psychological or conceptual block that prevents science fiction from actually getting past the present and projecting out into a future without imagining basically total negation, uh, the death of humanity in some form, um, or the death of the human actors involved, and the self-negation of the novum, the, the, uh, the example in Frankenstein being the creature and Victor both go and die on the ice, all of the notes are gone, nobody can reproduce the creature, and so the world's history is not changed or redefined by the expansive possibility of, say, the creature and his hypothetical bride producing a new species. Uh, and the Frankenstein barrier gets used sometimes to mean that, like, sort of, that it's often presented as a conservative notion. The idea that, like, oh, you flinched away from the implications of a new, different world, or you were unable to imagine them. And then the article basically goes on to argue that this is a result of a certain kind of psychological intersection of binary thinking in which uh, basically it's kind of bicameral. The left brain and the right brain are going to fight each other with knives. The imaginative impulse is constrained by a kind of reason that can't let it go further, and it annihilates. Yeah. So. And, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just about to ask you, so what do you remember thinking it was? I mean, what I remember thinking it was is just science fiction has a tendency to, especially science fiction in the mid-century from, uh, like, uh, and popular science fiction, especially filmic versions, have a tendency to just eliminate the science fictional invention by the end of the story. Frankenstein being an example, but also uh, Jurassic Park, where... The end is, and we have to shut down the park, and we don't continue making dinosaurs. Obviously, there were sequels, so there's an interesting interplay there. Uh, and at this point, we've got Jurassic World, which, uh, regardless of any merit it may or may not have, I haven't seen them, is about the idea of what if this broke out and went everywhere, while also falling back into this would mostly just kill some people. Um, but similarly, the classic example of the Frankenstein barrier that I saw referenced was, like, 50s and 60s science fiction cinema. B-movies get real big, there's lots of depictions of science fiction, and in every single one, the invention or the monster goes away by the end of the story. And this is also true of a lot of the more popular uh, science fiction sort of gadget stories. Not universally, there's always been, you know, Gernsback's Ralph 124C Plorbon Moore and similar pulp science fiction often depicted science fictional futures where changes and inventions happen in a very linear and kind of boring way. But the radical change promised by a lot of novums is usually curtailed, at least for a large chunk of time, rather than allowed to run through the whole of society and remake it. Yeah. So that's that's the thing I was remembering. I had completely forgotten the bit where it was like psychoanalytical via like Sagan and the idea of the reptile brain. Yeah, that whole reptile <laughs> brain thing. Yeah. Especially the part where the reptile brain is cold and the the, the mammal, mammal brain, brain is warm. warm. 
I'm yeah. like, like reptiles actually need to be warm. Yeah, it's um, it's nineties. It, it uh, is. It's true in a totally different way. Yeah, and I'll be honest, and this is. I think that there's some a really interesting core thing it notices, which is the tendency of the futurity in science fiction to be curtailed in order to create a narrative that can be structured. But I also think it has some really bad readings of individual science fictional works to fit that in a way that really undermines it. Yeah. Some it, of it... which are just... My guy, we do see the planet in Solar in Tarkovsky's Solaris. We literally see it in a scene you describe. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It, the The piece really dips its toe into so many different science fiction works that yeah, it, it feels like it doesn't um, like really engage deeply with any yeah. of them. Yeah, it's looking at them and saying this resembles the thing I'm talking about rather than really giving a a solid reading of them in that frame uh one thing i found very frustrating besides the solaris thing which is it's a bad reading of solaris is there's a bunch of readings of cyberpunk because that's what this is responding to specifically uh bruce sterling has proposed the idea that cyberpunk is a new kind of science fiction that sees the real future by talking about real technologies it's closer it's not talking about like rocket ships etc it's talking about cybernetics the internet or what will become the internet and things like that and this is this is still a thing people say about cyberpunk, the idea that it was like a more realistic or insightful science fiction because it focused on different technologies and on a smaller horizon, excuse me, of the future and on the social ills these technologies would not cure but become entrenched within. And I don't like its reading of Neuromancer either. Yeah, yeah, I... You know, there's a part of me that is just kind of like, well, what would be a an actual depiction of a changed future for you? Yeah. Like, like what would qualify as breaking the Frankenstein barrier? I mean, being very blunt, I think that singularitarian fiction would count as completely blowing past the Frankenstein barrier as long as it genuinely brought some humans along for the ride. So, like, but it's in a yeah. weird place where, like, any anything that is so extropian that humanity completely changes because that is what it's what he's talking about he he references the world the flesh and the devil which is a famous piece of like weird science fiction ish uh like theory and philosophy projecting out into the future the idea that the world is like material scarcity and we're these are the three enemies we must that humanity must face the world is material scarcity and the limits of our surroundings and we're going to de we're going to defeat that by fully engineering the world then the flesh that's the limits of the human body the limits of the human uh physical form we're going to have to modify ourselves become cyborgs genetically augment ourselves in order to overcome those limits and then the devil is humanity's own tendency for self-destruction our own psychological limits and those are the ones where what is this bernal i think is the is the guy who wrote the world the flesh and the devil yeah 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 uh the devil being humanity self-destructive psychological impulses for which bernal does not have a sort of technological solution and says whatever comes out of this is going to look like his solution for that is an overmind a hive mind the idea that we're going to have to overcome individuality to overcome the devil 
and this actually gets uh, brought up as like, and here's some science fiction works that do do this, but in all of them, uh, for Slicer, the overmind is death because, or rather, it annihilates the human perspective that becomes part of it and is therefore not a solution to the Frankenstein boundary because it's the same as if a story ends with humanity being wiped out, basically. Yeah, and that's kind of what I mean when I'm like, well, what would satisfy you? you yeah. Know? Um, I, I genuinely don't know. I think that he may have defined himself around into a situation where every science fiction work ultimately has to end up depicting the sterile enclosure of humanity because if you get, if you defeat the devil in Bernal's terms, uh, then you have uh, transcended humanity in a way that makes it you inhuman. And if you haven't defeated the devil, then you're just going to repeat the same dramas of self-destruction as before. I would also say that there's, like, a, a critique I would make of this piece is, like, how do you know that this is wrong? Like, mm. like not to say that I am fully signing on for the idea that, like, Yes, human developments in technology always just result in us killing ourselves. That's not what I'm saying. But, like, he doesn't seem to be interested in engaging with this idea ideologically, even though it is obviously an ideological concept. Yeah. I mean, so... It's just a given for him that we must or should break the Frankenstein barrier. Yeah, I mean, I want to slightly push back on that. I don't think he's necessarily saying we must or should, because I think a number of the artists he likes are depicted as maintaining the Frankenstein barrier. Although I, I think he's a bit dismissive of Shelley herself, which, grr, are, I don't like it. Um, but he, uh, I think that he's more suggesting that the, on a formal level... Science fiction is sort of circling the same fundamental structure because it can't break the Frankenstein barrier. He's not necessarily saying that it would be morally good or even formally good to do so, only that cyberpunk's claim to do so is not true. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, to be honest, I do find that convincing. Like, I don't think cyberpunk is a fundamentally different type of science fiction. No, I um, I mean, I, I rather, agree there. Or, I, I think cyberpunk... <laughs> was a new development in science fiction absolutely yeah. um but it's just a development in the way that genres develop you know it, um, it certainly isn't a sudden burst of prophecy yeah because that that's yes. what it's being at the very least that is how he's presenting sterling's claim that this new science fiction is more capable of prognostication because it is more grounded within certain ideas that allow for accurate speculation and if this was an argument that science fiction is not fundamentally a uh, prognosticating medium and that instances where science fictional speculation aligns with future developments are fundamentally contingent coincidences, I'd be fully on board. Like, I 100% agree that prognostication and prediction are not things science fiction can do in any real way or should try to do in any functional way, except in the sense of, like, a grounded speculation can be useful for thinking about things. But that's yeah. not quite what's going on here. What he's saying is science fiction desires to be prophecy, and that would be like its ultimate formal expansion, but it has never been able to break through into that. And I think that's an interesting statement, but also I disagree with an axiom. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's true. Um, 
Also, this article just has less to do with Frankenstein than you might think, based on <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I'm, it's... I'm glad we read it. I'm glad we're talking about it. But it actually feels like it fits kind of weirdly into this episode because its engagement with Frankenstein is relatively shallow and very much on the level of plot. Yeah, I mean, what I would say well, is... Well, okay, not exclusively on the level of plot. Yeah, what I would say is I think that this is engaging with Frankenstein as a science fictional text and is doing mm. very straightforwardly science fiction studies things with it, um, it to some extent it is able to uh, it's not breaking the Frankenstein barrier but it is moving beyond the very specific single novel discussion of Frankenstein that has been so central to the other texts because it sees science it sees science fiction as a genre as um, continuous with Frankenstein for the question it's asking. So yes. it is, I think in a certain sense, it is more descriptive of the idea of like discussing science fiction through Frankenstein rather than closely discussing Frankenstein itself. Yeah, I think that's true. Yes, it's also got an interesting bit that I do think is uh, of interest to science fiction studies about characterizing the uh, Frankenstein barrier before it gets into the psychological sort of multi, multi-channel multi human mind thing with um, the idea that Frankenstein's uh, creature is thingness, is the physicality of the present, is materiality, and the revenge of the creature against Victor is the revenge of things against the creator of things, of the present against the future. And that I find a bit more effective, the idea that, like, part of the Frankenstein barrier is that in science fiction we invest in novums, in things, uh, a certain kind of, like, yes, this is what will propel us into a future, into a difference, and because they are things, because of that contingency, maybe, I'm not saying I credit this necessarily, I'm saying it's an interesting way to take the argument, maybe that reliance on novums and the centrality of the novum and our inhibit makes us unable to then expand it out into social transformation. But if that's the case, that the Frankenstein barrier was broken by John Campbell when he was like, okay, but if you're writing science fiction for my magazine, uh, I want you to write about the social impact of the novum as much about the, rather than the way the novum functions as its sort of fundamental question. And also I'm going to be a huge racist. So, you know. He but, is! But yeah. Anyways. Well, yeah, no, I know. I don't disagree. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I um, This idea of, of thingness, um, I don't know, I would have liked to see that developed more in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think the I think the descent, okay, descent's unfair. I think the move to the psychological argument for where the barrier comes from that relies on certain psychological precepts I find very, like, they're certainly interesting to read, but I don't know if I'm, I follow them as, a, as axioms. That really did lose me also it's immediately after this thingness is proposed that you get the reading of solaris and a number of other films and books that i just disagree with yeah Uh, yeah but the um i do like uh there's one line here i do want to pull out that is interesting which is Things like brides are the traditional stuff of literature, and as such they exist in the measure of a constant human mirror, the one held up to Victor's creature to make it retreat from the future to the white wastes of some blank and mute present. And he goes on to say that uh, 
creators like Shelley who, uh, and I say creators because he's referencing film as well, but like authors like Shelley who uh, raise up the thingness of things and sort of the tr these traditional things that stand in the way of this speculation. He doesn't use the word speculation, but that's really what he's talking about in my opinion. And uh, sort of curtail future possibility by the things that currently exist are, quote, cultists of ruins which is a really fascinating term to use and not fucking mention uh, Percy B. Shelley's Ozymandias. Yeah. Like, the Romantics were cultists of ruins. They were super interested in ruins as representations of the idea that the current systems and orders of the world are transient. And that is a kind of science fiction that I think can pass the quote-unquote Frankenstein barrier where... It may often be post-apocalyptic in its sort of crudest form, but the idea that the current system will not last forever, that it will change, you know, in, in the words of Gene Wolfe, that you can make a change in yourself or in society, and that this change is not necessarily good or bad, but is going to occur, um, that is something that was definitely present in a sort of uh, fatalistic, romantic, uh, heroic way in the Romantics, and just doesn't get referenced at all, even though he discusses that exact same idea in a movie that he's like, oh, this creator calls it SF, but it's just images of old Roman ruins and things and implying that that'll happen to us. Man, I've gotten meaner yeah. about him over time. Sluster here. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> but I feel like, like maybe this sorry. particular episode is coming across as us being less enthused about science fiction studies as a field. No, 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 <laughs> but, no. But it, look, I think like, maybe what we're learning here, and we, we made it very clear that what we read has not been remotely comprehensive, but I think maybe what we're learning here is that reading Frankenstein solely as science fictional and as like the kind of or text of science fiction leaves out a lot of really important stuff. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a fair statement. I think that, like, I mean, I think this is going to be true of any ur text of something that is actually, like, unless it's, like, this is a, this is an exemplar of a genre that was already stable by the time it was written as an ur text. Like, this is the, this is the, you know, scientific measurement example of science fiction, right? Like, you could probably use, and I'm, I'm, I don't like saying this, but Samuel Delaney is somewhere going, yes, correct, Heinlein. You could use Moon as a Heart's Mistress as like a comprehensive example of a certain era of developed science fiction. But when Frankenstein is written, there isn't a science fiction tradition. There's barely a gothic tradition relative to how it's going to go. It is... I mean, it's it's monstrous progeny. It's it's a monster and a hopeful monster. It's a new invention that jumps ahead of development significantly, and thus has all sorts of weird connections to its time and its past. Yeah, the interesting thing is, it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, not the creature nor Frankenstein, the the character, but Frankenstein, the novel, broke the Frankenstein barrier. Right? Yeah, I mean, like. I afforded a new thing in literature. Yeah, it is a novum in a certain sense. Like, literally in the Blockian sense of a new thing in history that has not been seen before, um, and which therefore has these weird and strange effects. You know, when we talked about uh, Frankenstein very briefly in the episode on Joanna Russ's critical writings, uh, we mentioned that Joanna Russ was really critical of Frankenstein. It's like, oh, this isn't a, this is not a sort of felicitous book. It doesn't have the the classical st structural and stylistic values. And to some extent, my response to that, I think then and still now, is 
yeah, I'm gonna afford a totally new thing some uneven patches. Yeah, like, I do think that uh, after having read these pieces, I am coming around to the idea that Frankenstein as a novel is kind of lopsided, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That there is something a little bit hideous about this progeny, you know? It's, it is, as a novel, kind of uneven. There are bits of it where it's like, if I'm looking at this through the lens of this being a science fictional work, and frankly, I think this is also one of the places where science fiction studies is necessary to talk about Frankenstein, is if you leave out the idea that this is this urtext of science fiction, that it is going to have this history after it, that it is going to be a source of a, you know, quote, a a romantic man-made myth that has all of this influence and all of these variations, if you leave out those ways of looking at it, you're going to go... Well, this gothic novel is kind of uneven and not very polished, and it's interested in these things that really don't have anything to do with, like, uh, the core themes of the gothic in certain ways, and it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, well, yeah, because those things aren't going to be picked up for another hundred years by anyone else. Yeah. Uh, or those things are, like, an attempt to start constructing the kind of things that science fiction is later going to rely on. Ah. <sighs> But yeah, no, I, um, like I said at the beginning, I'm a Mary Shelley defender, uh, and I only get more so every time I read something that is kind of like, oh, I, I don't think Mary Shelley went far enough. It's like, it's 1818. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this is also, and I know we ragged on Suvin a bunch uh, in the previous episode for precisely this reason. This is also where a lot of the frustration with Suvin going, oh, Percy B. Shelley was a better science fiction author than Mary Shelley. Once you use my trans-historical definition of science fiction that uh, even if you take me seriously, you don't necessarily fully buy into. Um, Because it's like, okay, but what you're doing is you're saying since science fiction doesn't have to have any of the formal elements of science fiction really, then Frankenstein's a problem because in its early to some extent, halting and monstrous attempts at those formal elements, it isn't as polished as something that just didn't have them, because it was just doing a romantic poem straightforwardly. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, no, I, I do think the idea of the Frankenstein barrier at core is interesting. The idea that there's something that sort of stands in the way, I just think that a lot of science fiction does go past it, that if you see it as the the Frankenstein barriers being, like, a fundamental part of mainstream popular science fiction in film, in movies, if you think about it in terms of, you know, the way people talk about, you know, the Marvel Universe, in Marvel Cinematic Universe would have a lot more changes to society than are presented, but the story constantly tries to erase or go back on the, the events of its own stories because it doesn't like the change in setting. That's a useful use of the idea. I just think that Frankenstein barrier is not maybe the best term to use. Yeah, no, that's true. I think if I were going to use this concept, like if I were going to write about it, or more Mm -hmm. realistically, if I was going to talk about it later on this podcast, I would probably like, uh, I would want to like shift the term somehow. I I don't know exactly how, because I'm not, trying to do that at this moment yeah Um, but i think like there is a real barrier i just don't know if it is fundamentally frankensteinian yeah yeah i think frankenstein is the first time it appears i think that's a very fair way to describe it and i think that that 
the fact that that appears is another good argument for Frankenstein as science fictional urtext because that that formal event is often a way of making a science fictional text narratively shaped. New thing appears, it is, as Suvin would say, hegemonic to the plot, the novum is the defining quality of the plot, and then you can close the book out by removing the novum and thus ending the plot. Yeah. It's, it is a, that is a story that can only really make sense in science fiction, or you have to kind of go out on a limb to produce the new thing that then can be removed to end the plot in the same way. So yeah, I might call it like a Frankenstein arc or something. Like, I think if you didn't call it a barrier and imply mm. that this was a failing and rather described it as a way of structuring, like... You know, in um, in Chichere Ronai, we talked about the idea that uh, the space opera is sort of a novel uh, genre, stru genre structure, narrative structure of science fiction, that it's one of the seven beauties. You can only do the space opera in science fiction. I think that the, the Edisonade, which is closely related to this kind of Frankenstein arc of invention that then ultimately does not need to continue past the end of the story, things like that. I think that is also a uniquely science fictional plot structure. The self-cleaning novum. <laughs> oh. but yeah, I think we've, unless we want to nitpick uh, Slusser more, which is doable, uh, I think we've exhausted uh, the Frankenstein barrier. We've run up against it. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel about ready to conclude at this point. Um well, yeah. Um, uh, oh, can I, I? I realize I've been talking a bunch in the last couple minutes, but um, I, no, I go do. Ahead. One idea that uh, I really like in talking about Frankenstein that is not something that I've seen a lot written on, and if anyone has seen papers written on it, let them know, because that means I don't have to write this in the future, uh, that is very science fiction studies y, is, and is related to this idea of the Frankenstein barrier, is. Um, uh, and I think responds to the idea that this is a fundamentally conservative novel is uh, the idea of contingency, which is not something that we mm. see brought up in any of these. Um, that the story of Frankenstein could have gone other ways. Yes. And I think this is, and again, I'm bringing it up because the Frankenstein barrier is basically arguing this story could not have gone other ways without inventing a totally new form. And possibly, arguably, that Shelley was incapable of making it go another way. And I think that that really misses the fact that the whole novel is about the tragedy of this could have gone another way. You know, I think if anything kind of uh, walks up to or, or, or uh, evokes for me what you're mm -hmm. talking about, it might be The Mad Woman in the Attic because, and like, I've not read the whole book. Yeah. Um, and I specifically have not read the following chapter about Wuthering Heights. Um, but, you know, uh, the authors draw this uh, this contrast between, like, different responses to Milton. And yeah. Frankenstein is the kind of rewriting Milton to show what Paradise Lost is when you read it as a woman. But in a yeah. way where you kind of continue to say Paradise Lost is the story. Poem, yeah. 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 Right. Whereas uh, they see Wuthering Heights as like a more um, more resistant, more opposed uh, position. Yeah. Um, I mean, the title of the chapter on that is "Looking Oppositely: Emily Bronte's Bible of Hell." 
Nice, um, nice. I, I love Wicked books. We we did a whole podcast about one. Yeah, and so the, the interesting thing about that is if there is a contingency here, right, if there is a possibility of going otherwise, then maybe Gilbert and Gubar see that in Wuthering Heights. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting, and I'll I'll maybe uh, try to find the time to uh, read that. Um, no, because I because I did really like the uh, the Shelley chapter in um, in Mad Woman in the Attic. At some point, I should probably read the whole thing, but who has the time? Um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty sizable. It's um, sizable. It's book. densely written. It's it's good. It's it's good eating. Um, I really. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, I enjoyed everything we read for uh, for this, but I think the one I enjoyed the most was Mad Woman in the Attic. Um, but yeah, I but would. Yeah. I, I think I agree. And this idea of the the tragedy of it could have gone otherwise is for me most concluded by the fact that Victor's final lines and like on his deathbed are, um, uh, you know, I you know he's he's talking about how he's failed, how he never should have attempted, and then he sort of rallies and says. But perhaps someone else may succeed where I have failed. And that's the last line Victor has. And similarly, there's this idea in the creature's final lines of, you know, this should have been otherwise. He owed me a different kind of thing. And if you read that in the context of the French Revolution, which, again, that's a good reason for the Frankenstein barrier in Frankenstein. If this is modeled off of a particular event recently, it's one that ended in bloodshed and the restoration and the monarchy coming back in a new form and with fewer heads of the previous ones, but you know what I mean. And yeah, the, um, this line says it was contingent. It was possible. It didn't have to go this way. And why it went this way is like why Victor was the kind of person to fail as a father or as a mother, depending on how you're reading that, why the creature having gone out into the world was met with conditions that created a murderer all of these are contingent on particular events, on a certain kind of bad fortune that was not really avoidable in their time and place, but was not necessarily forever. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I think that's a good place to end. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I like your thoughts on contingency. Um, I appreciate it. So, oh. uh, Ben, um, do you want to tell people about where they can oh, find... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I still have a tabletop RPG out. It is still probably the only tabletop RPG that has ever included a quote from Darko Suvin in it. Um, we'll find out if that's true when someone sends me a, a game I've never heard of that I'm really excited to learn about. Uh, but it's uh, Detector Die, heavily inspired by Disco Elysium. Um, also... Uh, Recently was uh, reading A Borrowed Man by Gene Wolfe and realized I could totally do a, a whole game of Detector Die based on that. So that's an, chalk that up as another one that realized this genre combination works. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a game about uh, all the players playing the different parts of the psyche of an amnesiac detective. Yes. Uh, so you see the Disco Elysium influence. Yes, and uh, it's... Uh, Powered by the Apocalypse derived, if that means anything to you, it's a, a certain kind of tabletop RPG. Uh, I've had uh, some great success running it. I'm hoping to soon put out for free some uh, some case files so that people can run it with sort of a some pre-written stuff that'll make that a little easier. And you can find I think, it. I think by the time this goes out, your case file will probably be out. 
If I have the time to work on it, yes. <laughs> but yes, thank you for your faith in me. Um, but yeah, the uh, um, it is on uh, Silk and Stone on itch.io. The game is called Detect or Die. Um, and we'll have a link in the description. Oh, thank you. Yes, that that's a good idea. Thank you for thank you for reminding me. And I should mention, uh, Mark was my editor, and I really that's... really appreciated his work. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was I was happy to help work on it. Um, and if people want to uh, potentially see updates uh, about Detector Die, um, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, I am at Silk and Stone on both uh, the slowly sinking bird app as it descends into the swamp and on blue sky yeah um and uh you can find me at char asnablunt um on twitter uh and tumblr um and you can find me at ven diagram um on co-host and blue sky um also congrats really... on getting that on blue sky thank you thank you yeah uh, if there's one thing i can be proud of it's being an early adopter on blue sky question mark <laughs> um anyway uh, you didn't have to roast yourself that hard <laughs> um yeah so that's where you can find me online um and um listen to other abnormal mapping podcasts by the way um especially uh oh my gosh um by the time this comes out it's going to be a little while since this but i was on an episode of anomalous readings which is uh, the Abnormal Mapping podcast where they read science fiction books. Uh, and we read The Female Man. Synergy. Um, yes, yes. Synergy from podcasts that are on totally different release schedules. <laughs> Look, I, I assume that people listen to podcasts at some vague speculative point in the future in which they have uh, just happened to stumble upon it, possibly on a like recording tape in a destroyed space station. <laughs> Uh, yeah, after the Frankenstein barrier has been broken, uh, <laughs> listen to our podcast to remind you what the world was like before. I, um, there are other things you could listen to for that, but, <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, you ready to go? Yeah, I think so. Do we want Stay to sign off? Stay cognitively Sorry, sorry, I'm not used to it yet. Stay cognitively estranged, everybody.